0: The passage before us is in the passage before us, chapter 14, verses 14 to 20, describes two reapings of the earth. The second drawing upon some of the same imagery of the wine of the wrath of God that was found in the previous. But before that, two verses separate these passages. Let's read chapter 14, verses 12 to 13, just the first portion of our passage. Oh, uh, NASB, right? Great. Did, Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep co- the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow follow with them. The first angel in chapter 14 carried an eternal gospel to preach, and we discussed that at some length. Jesus spoke of this as well in his eschatological discourse in Matthew 24. Here's what he said in verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Now, at that point, we could, we could say, well, sure, yeah, for the last 2,000 years, yeah. But he ties it in. And then the end will come. So he's speaking eschatologically. The third angel in verse 12 echoes something else Jesus said in verse 13 of Matthew 24. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Time and again, God's word confirms itself repeatedly. So verses 12 to 13. Very often the differences in translation of a passage between our common version leads to confusion, even frustration. Which one is right? I found however that in this instance the difference in how our versions treat this almost parenthetical passage of the two verses lying between the doom of the worshipers of the beast in verses 9 to 11, and the reaping of the earth, verses 14 to 20, how that actually facilitated my understanding of these enigmatic two verses. At first reading in the NASB, verse 12 seems to refer back to something just said. Here is the perseverance of the saints. Doesn't that make you want to back up to the verses above and say, what did I miss? As in, Here we have just seen the perseverance of the saints, but we didn't. It wasn't there. The previous passage is not about the saints at all, but about what will happen to those bearing the mark of the beast. By contrast, a number of our other versions have it, this calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints. Well, now that makes a lot more sense which is not a reference to something else, but is an injunction for the saints to actively persevere in their faith and obedience, well, which is it? Answer, yes. Perseverance is guaranteed to those who are in Christ. Anyone who has placed not just their belief in but their complete trust in the risen Christ, Jesus, will endure to the end. Even through the hideous trials, the worst the world has ever seen of the great tribulation, Jesus said it would be worse than anything else, Matthew 24, 21. Yet, perseverance is a two-way street we are indeed called to actively endure, to persevere. One way to look at this is that while our faith guarantees we will persevere, our faith also gives us the desire to obey, as our passage says, the commandments of God and the strength and will to endure. This is a match set. They go together. As important as it is, this is not the time or place to launch into a discourse on the perseverance of the saints. We have done that in this church, and I add to that in the handout. That's what that's for. If you want it, to, it, on page one, it's Old Testament references, and on the back, it's New Testament references uh, wrapped in a sandwich of John MacArthur quotations. So uh, you can do that on your own. Let's read the next. Let's, let's read verses 14 to 16 of our passage. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. earth was reaped. During his earthly ministry, Jesus spoke of a ripe harvest awaiting reaping. Matthew 9, 37 to 38. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now there the harvest was of souls ready to be, as D.A. Carson puts it, reaped into the kingdom Later on, however, Jesus spoke of the harvest to take place at the end of the age. Let's read that. Go back to Matthew 13. Matthew 13, verses 47 to 50. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now in our passage, Back in chapter 14, we have two harvests portrayed. The first using the imagery of a grain harvest. The second using the imagery of a harvest of grapes. As always, there's disagreement, of course. Some take the position that the first, verses 14 to 16, is of the saints, reaping the good guys. While the second, verses 17 to 20, is of the wicked. This position is based in part on the fact that God's wrath and punishment are mentioned only in the second. As Sice mentions, some see the first harvest even as the final gathering home of the people of God. Others probably in the majority, see both of these harvests as two aspects of the reaping of the wicked. The first being the imminent seven bowls of judgment. The second being the battle of Armageddon. One point that seems to substantiate this second position. Ask yourself, would Christ use a sharp sickle to bring his children home? That doesn't quite track for me. The picture we have in the rapture is that he comes down personally and wraps us in his arms and takes us home. He doesn't use a sickle. And the, notice how in both of these it emphasizes a sharp sickle, ready for business. It's going to lop them off. A case can be made for either, but we will go with the latter, that this passage speaks only of the reaping of the wicked. And in a sense, we can see this of a piece with verses 12 to 13. There we're told that what will happen to those who have persevered, specifically those who have come to Christ during the tribulation and suffered for their faith through far more than any of us can even imagine, They will be blessed. They will have rest from their labors, welcomed into glory to dwell forever with their Lord for whom they have suffered. Then the passage that follows, the one we're in right now, portrays the flip side what will happen to those who have rejected Christ? So, verse 14. Then I looked. And behold, a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Among our common versions, only the King James Version and the Christian Standard Bible, the newer Bible from Holman, have the son of man, while the rest Even the sainted NASB have a son of man. It is true that the text has like, homios, resembling, the same as, but the vast majority of commentators take the position that this is indeed Christ Jesus. It is the son of man, glorified, complete with his crown of gold. Thus, here we see first the Son of Man, Daniel 7.13, Revelation 1.13, Matthew 25.31, was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man. We see him in his glory and authority, that's the cloud, he's on a throne, but also the crown of victory. This is not a kingly crown. Once again, it's Stephanos, the crown of victory. He is victorious over evil and unbelief and about to exert his judgment and punishment on all the wicked on earth. Once again, here we see, personally, with sickle in hand, something very different from what I usually say from the Gospels, but really when you read the Gospels, that's not true, is it? He was a tough, he called it as it was. He didn't. Whew. If someone was in desperate need and repentant and humble, he would do anything for him. But if you were full of yourself, if you were cantankerous, if you did were not repentant, He called it as he was, and he didn't hold anything back. I just love the fact that he would be invited to someone's home. He sits down, he lies at the table, and first thing out of his mouth, you hypocrite, to his host. What a guy. But the world today wants to paint Christ as an insipid flower child who just loves everybody, and that's not true. This is the true Christ that will really come out in his wrath in the end times. We see him in his righteous wrath and a sharp sickle in his hand, ready to do justice on all who have rejected his lordship. Now, verse 15. And another angel came out of the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is ripe. This verse is full of things that explain why we need to have Sunday school. Because if you read it on the surface, you don't get it. Now, I have to be fair and balanced here and express my disappointment in the NASB for its inconsistency. In verse 13, the NASB's first choice is to make it a son of man, lowercase, son of man. Admittedly, to its credit, and one of the reasons I like the NASB is that they're very generous in their margin notes. If there's an alternate reading that many people subscribe to, they will include it. But here they chose as their first choice, a son of man. But here in verse 15 and in verse 16, the NASB refers to the same individual, the one sitting on the cloud, as him, he, and his, all uppercase. In other words, words of Christ. Well, which is it? Make up your mind. It's Christ. Some are bothered by the picture of a mere angel commanding Christ to do something. that Yeah, Patty says, hey, now wait a minute. Oh, wait a minute. Well, let's look at that. I don't see it that way, by the way. Yes, the angel speaks to him who sat on the cloud, but I think there's a very good chance it's not for his benefit. There's two possibilities here. Or at least the tone of the shout is not meant to be a command to Christ, the Son of God. The word translated crying out, the word is kratzon, is a bit of an enema a word formed by the sound it describes, because this is this describe this word describes the sound that a uh, a a blackbird, a, a crow would make, a raven. Crasson, it's 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 meant that way. That's what it's it, it it's. In fact, it 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 can even mean inarticulate screaming. That's what some people do in my classes. Running from the room, screaming. This word is used for the croak of a raven. So this is a rather unpleasant, harsh shout from the angel whose audience is less the son of man than the soon recipients of the impending harvest. I think that's one possibility. One might also see this as a shout being for the ages a shockwave announcement for the end of all things on earth. That would explain the tone of it. I mean, the Son of God sitting here, you don't scream in his ear, you know? It's also possible, a second possibility, that the angel's cry really is an official notification from God the Father to God the Son. In his eschatological discourse to his disciples, Jesus said about the timing all this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. Matthew 24, 35 to 36. Perhaps this is a vision of that moment when the Father will inform the Son, now. Now in all events i would still conclude that the tone of the message is for the earth and its age and the ages so the verse continues the hour to reap has come because the harvest of the earth is ripe our typical use of the word ripe is to describe something that is at its peak as in a a ripe apple that's ready to be plucked from the tree. I do that when I'm mowing. I'm mowing mowing the, the orchard and grab an apple as I'm going along, or a pear, anything the deer have not already eaten. So we normally think of ripe as no longer green, but now delicious and sweet, but here the word ripe the word is exerante, exer, exerante, means instead something that is dried up, shriveled, withered away. It's desiccated well past its sell by date. That delicious apple is now a withered, rotten, revolting piece of garbage. The implication of the verse is that the promised judgment is overdue. Quote, "The rotten moral condition of the world must be dealt with now with a sharp sickle." John Walford. Or John MacArthur, "The grain, the earth pictured here has passed the point of usefulness and is fit only to be gathered up and burned with fire." Verse 16. Then he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was reaped. Once again, God, is, God in his word is offering us a different aspect of a portion of the last things. Indeed, the climax to all the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and now here, the bowl judgments, which have not yet occurred. They've only been talked about. There's only been preparation. And in the next chapter, the following chapters, they're still preparing for it. There's a whole chapter that's just, okay, the angel's getting ready. Here we go, getting our bowls filled. It hasn't yet happened. In chapter 16, we'll see John's vision of the actual dispensing of these horrible plagues. But here we have a dark, metaphorical, almost in a perverse way, poetical, interpretation of the events. We commonly think of a sickle or scythe as a tool to reap what was sown, to gather up for our consumption the life-sustaining stalks of wheat that will become bread for our table. Here and in the passage below, however, the sickle becomes an instrument of death, a horizontal guillotine lopping off the heads of the wicked left on earth. I'm sorry, there's no way I can tie this into Christmas. This, of course, is a metaphor for the suffering and death poured out from the bowls of wrath, which will include loathsome, malignant sores, all remaining water turned to blood, scorching heat from the sun, darkness, pain, and sores poured out directly upon the throne of the beast. Next, we turn to a similar aspect of a second reaping, this time to quote the title of a famous book, The Grapes of Wrath. Let's read verses 17 to 20. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress As high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Verses 14 to 16 paint a fantastical picture of the bull's judgments. Now, 17 to 20 do the same for the battle of Armageddon. And I always put battle of Armageddon, the battle part, in scare quotes. There's no battle. There's no war. There's no combat between soldiers. Happens like that. Verse 17. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, and he also had a sharp sickle. Let me toss in a sidebar here. Frankly, I would like to dwell for a while on this business of the temple, which is in heaven. The word temple, na'au, just means either the whole or part of a place where God dwells. It could mean the temple complex as a whole. It can also mean just the holy of holies, where the deity is. I'd like to, but I'm not yet prepared for such a discussion. For it's related, at least in my own mind, to Ezekiel's temple, the last temple, the temple of some believe the millennial end times. If literal, if it's a literal temple on earth, it's for the millennium. Or a figurative view of God ultimately dwelling with his people. I still have on my desk my handwritten note to myself. I have lots of questions about Ezekiel's temple. And those, temples, those questions have not yet been answered. For that discussion, I await the opportunity of a longer prep time than my normal seven days. Maybe in January I can do that. Stay tuned. Here we have another angel, not the son of man, who will be one wielding the sickle. Angels, especially during the last things, serve as more than just supernatural Western union men delivering messages. They'll be getting into the dirty work. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1 writes, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-8. And Jesus explained to his disciples in Matthew 13 that the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Later in the same chapter, Matthew 13, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now verse 18. Then another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar, and he called out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, because her grapes are ripe. This second angel is the one with power and authority over the fire of the altar in heaven. And shame again on the NASB, and this time the CSB, for not including the definite article as, as uh, what's her name here? The one with the, the one with Mike and the two kids in between. And boy can. <laughs> I, I think it. shall we just wrap it up? Kim. It's all right, I do it with my wife as well. They, the definite article, the fire is in the text. The fire. This is not an angel in charge of all fire, which is, if you read it in the NASB, that's what it sounds like. Oh, it's the fire angel. He just he's in charge of all the fire. Later we'll see the sea angel. This one's the fire. No, specifically the fire of the altar. And probably the same altar mentioned in Revelation 6, verse 9, about the martyrs underneath the altar. And 8, chapter 8, verse 3, incense and prayers. Most believe that this is the incense altar, this is the vision of the heavenly version of the incense altar in the the temple. This connection seems to indicate that this scene is a response to the many prayers of the saints for retribution, for God's judgment on earthly wickedness. And the prayers of the people, that's the incense altar. It was the incense going up. That was the prayers of the people. That's what it showed. This second angel calls with a loud, commanding voice to the angel with the sickle, to start swinging it and harvesting the clusters from the vine of the earth. Why? Because her grapes are ripe. But now, ripe is a different word. Let's let John MacArthur explain. The word ripe, ekmasan, is not the same Greek word used in 15. This word refers to something fully ripe and in its prime. Not withered and dried. It pictures earth's wicked, unregenerate people as bursting with the juice of wickedness and ready for the harvest of righteousness. That's good. The juice of wickedness. Verse 19. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the clusters from the vine of the earth and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Turn, please, to Revelation 19. I've stated that I choose to place the word battle in scare quotes when it refers to the Battle of Armageddon because there really is no combat to speak of. Armageddon is mentioned in a number of places in the Revelation, but and not always by that name. There are a number of passages about its preparation. In fact, if you look at the headings in my book, the Bible on my desk, you think, oh, well, it happened. It says Battle of Armageddon. Well, that was two chapters ago. Hasn't yet happened. It's just preparation. But here in chapter 19 is where it actually takes place. Immediately after Christ returns. As to its duration, note this in verse 19. Chapter 19, verse 19. 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on his horse and against his army. So this verse clearly states clearly that the battle has not yet occurred. They're just in readiness for it. In fact, one of the last things that happens during the bowls of wrath, I think it's, is it the, no, the sixth one, is it dries up the Euphrates, the river Euphrates. Why? So that the armies can make their way over from the east for the battle of Armageddon. So here in verse 19, we have the, the enemy, Satan's foe, Satan's enemies, Satan's army arrayed in their ranks, ready to go. Now look at verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. There's no mention of men fighting, no mention of combat. They're ready to go. They're looking at each other, and boom. The first thing that occurs is that the commanding general and his sidekick are taken captive alive and thrown into the lake of fire. What about their army? Verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. Even for that, there is preparation. God's word says, Come on, birds, you're about to have a feast. Once again, Christ speaks, and an entire army is slaughtered, their flesh lying about for the carnivorous birds to have their fill. Now, back up to verse 15, which foreshadows the action of verse 21. And ties into our passage in chapter 14. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now back to chapter 14. Who is it that works this winepress of the wrath of God? Who is it that presses it down to squeeze out the blood of the enemy? Verse 19, verse, chapter 19, verse 15, And he, that is Christ, treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. Now, note the imagery. It is, of course, metaphorical. There will not be a huge wine press set up on the plain of Megiddo or just outside Jerusalem into which the bodies of the slain will be fed for Christ to literally stomp to extract their blood. This is metaphorical. It's a way in a vision. I mean, think of the dreams you have, they're mostly metaphorical. This is a vision. It's one aspect of this final battle. When does this occur? Where does it fall in the narrative sequence? Upon Christ's return to earth. The prophet Joel speaks of this moment employing the same imagery. Joel 3 verses 11 to 13 Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Lord, your mighty ones. Let the nations be aroused, and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, tread, for the winepress is full the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Verse 20. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood came out from the winepress up to the horses' bridles for a distance of 200 miles. <clears throat> Now, what's he gonna say about this? Some expositors cast a wary eye at this idea of, quote, blood coming out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. Okay, let's discuss it. They're especially wary of it if they imagine this describing flowing blood, which, Is uh, Kim? Do you have ESV? Yeah. And I think it said flowed, didn't it? Verse twenty. Blood flowed out. Yeah, flowed. Okay. Well, if you imagine this as flowing like an ocean of blood, yeah, for two hundred miles. Hmm. And up to the horse's bridles, how many hands is that? That's (laughs) probably taller than me. But a more sensible reading of this is that for the length and breadth of the battle, which, as we will see, we can easily imagine it covering such a distance, blood from the carnage is liberally spattered to such a height. the horse's bridles are spattered with blood it doesn't say even even flowing it doesn't say that it rises to a depth of horse's bridles most of us probably have imagined this battle of Armageddon being staged as most wars in ancient times. Two armies meet upon a plain or a wide valley with good distance between, and then somebody starts it and they just come at each other. That is, the battle is fairly well contained in one spot. But the evidence from our prophets reveals that this will be a widespread conflict. Localized in Israel, but perhaps perhaps covering its length and breadth and even beyond its borders. For example, many, but not all, see the name of the battle being associated with the plain of Esdralon near Mount Megiddo. Hence the name which is about 60 miles north of Jerusalem. So our our passage spoke of the wine vat being just outside the city, which would be Jerusalem. Well, the Megiddo is 60 miles north of Jerusalem. Yet Isaiah prophesies, seeing Messiah coming up from the battle, with his garments stained with blood from Basra in Edom, about 70 miles south and east of Jerusalem. In fact, it's not even inside the border of uh, Israel today. It's in uh, Jordan. Turn, please, to Isaiah 63. Isaiah... 63, and I'll start in verse 1. Who is this who comes from Adam with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. And then this person answers, It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then he asks another, Why is your apparel red? And your garments like the one who treads in the winepress. And he answers, I have trodden the wine trough alone. And from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod, trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. And their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments. And I stained all my raiment. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption has come. I looked, and there was no one to help. And I was astonished, and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me, and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger, and I made them drunk in my wrath. And I poured out their lifeblood on the earth." Again, we cannot think of this as a typical confrontation of two armies battling away at each other for days or weeks or months. The battle, the, the confrontation, let's say, as brief as it is, will probably cover, easily cover 200 miles. The full length, many believe the full length of Israel and spilling over into other areas, at least on the east side, They'll get a little wet if they go the other way. There will indeed be two armies, one from the earth, one from heaven, one wicked, one righteous. And if you think the millennium during which Christ rules on earth will be paradise on earth, will be heaven on earth, think again. Where do you think this army comes from? They've been gathered from the people of earth over the millennium. People born during those thousand years who reject Christ as king and they sign up with Satan and the beast. I'm sorry, I'm getting my battles mixed up. I did it again. That applies To the final battle after the millennium. I'm sorry. This is confusing enough without that. No, during the tribulation, we know there's wicked people on earth. There's people who reject Christ, and they will come for this battle. But the righteous king, astride his white horse at the head of the heavenly host, will be the only one who casts a fatal blow. Only one blow that will fell every last warrior in the opposition there will be no fighting only the bloody carnage the slaughter of millions by the words spoken from the arriving messiah king of kings and lord of lords Aren't you looking forward to the day when Christ returns for this class? Blood and carnage and evil and agony. It's almost here. It's just around the corner. Our Father, we thank you for your patience with us. And for your Spirit who helps us understand this, and the rest of your word. we pray that, that Spirit that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and help us to not just understand, believe, but to live this. We are to be numbered among your warriors. When Christ comes, if people of our descendants are there, let him find them. He comes, Isaiah said he comes, and he couldn't find anyone to fight for him, only against him. How sad. But Father, we thank you that we have been born into your time of grace and mercy and long-suffering for we need it. Thank you for saving us, for sending your Son, even Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. Amen.